Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-host of Biotech 2050. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a two-sided tech marketplace where we're organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. I'm excited to welcome Glenn Rosen, Senior VP of Translational Sciences at Coherence Biosciences to the podcast. Glenn, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me here. We'd love to start off hearing about your background and, and career path to date. Sure. Well, I took a bit of a winding path to drug development, drug discovery, and pharma and biotech. I started in academia, a career uh, initially at Washington University of St. Louis. I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician by training and uh, did a lot of basic gene regulation work when I was at WashU, some work on uh, within the lung on arachidonic acid metabolism and COX-2, um, and then moved on to a position at Stanford. Um, where I led the interstitial lung disease program, but also had a bench research group who focused on mechanisms of injury and abnormal repair, specifically in fibrotic diseases. One of our major focuses was in a disease called interstitial lung disease, which is a chronic progressive disease in the lung. Um, The most common form of that is something called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And by the name, one would obviously observe that it's idiopathic in origin, but it does seem to be associated with aging. And also, there is a disease, there is a corollary disease, a genetic disease, which is associated with mutations in telomerase, which cause injury to the airway epithelial cell, and that generates both an inflammatory response and a senescent response which leads to oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction, and ultimately to fibrosis. And what I found was, as I was continuing my basic research career and doing translational work in that area, when we started seeing patients, and I started the uh, interstitial lung disease program with Susan Jacobs, one of the RNs at Stanford, an increasing frustration that uh, these patients uh, with a median survival of three to five years, that we couldn't do anything for them therapeutically. And... Um, That, and coupled with the reality and the observation that it's very challenging to do drug development and drug discovery in academia, really uh, motivated me to to look for other opportunities. And that's where I started uh, my journey a bit uh, later in my career, but in 2014, I moved to Bristol-Myers Squibb, where initially I started on a program leading the phase two program of a novel compound, an LPA1 receptor antagonist for the treatment of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And we completed that program. We actually had what looked like positive results, but the drug itself had some issues around some hepatoabiliary toxicity. So that drug wasn't able to be moved forward, but the pathway quite robust and and, uh, I think has potential going forward. In fact, there are drugs that target a similar pathway that are actively in development for um, lung fibrosis and other fibrotic diseases. That transition uh, was was incredibly uh, challenging, from, not incredibly, but challenging. It was like learning a, both a new language and a new career. Uh, drug de- development and drug discovery is much different than, than <laughs> academic research or clinical care. But I relished it and I, I thoroughly enjoyed the uh, challenges and the multiple opportunities to learn about chemistry and clinical pharmacology, things that I hadn't done since med school, <laughs> and how they all integrate and, and work together whether it's toxicology and uh, also the, the sobering reality that, that a, lot of, a lot of drugs fail, not because they don't hit their target, but they, have, they uh, fail from toxicity mm-hmm. or off-target effects. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought you know, going in that uh, that wasn't the case. 
So that, that was an incredibly valuable experience. And I moved uh, at BMS, I moved into different positions. One was I, I initially, uh, after that, I moved to a position heading the translation on early clinical program where I was in charge of a series of physicians in the early clinical and translational space, focusing more on translation, but also on uh, phase one and early phase two studies. Mm. And then I landed where I really, uh, I think, uh, where my passion is and my center is in the discovery space. Carl DeChico said, you, you found your place. And there I was leading the fibrosis biology group and the discovery biology group in fibrosis. Um, I also had some exposure prior to that in genetically defined diseases, which was something that I hadn't really uh, had much exposure to previously. So in the discovery biology group, we, we were involved in the development of two new compounds that, that have, are moving towards the clinic, and one is actually in the clinic. Um, but again, a, an invaluable experience working with uh, data scientists, informaticians, and really integrating multiple aspects of drug discovery and drug development um, into trying to optimize uh, therapeutics. And BMS was a great place to work because it really was very integrated. Obviously, the, the emphasis on immuno-oncology um, less so in fibrosis at the time, but they actually have, it seems like, expanded their interest in fibrosis after I left, so I'm, I'm happy to see that. Um, I decided to move to a biotech, uh, you know, type of um, organization and a smaller type of footprint, uh, mainly because of the, I think, what I, what I observed from others and, and uh, some interacting through business development opportunities, obviously, with a lot of biotech companies. Um, it was more entrepreneurial. Um, a little more rapid decision making, and also it allowed me to focus in an area that was a, a priority or a significant, you know, focus of the company priority at the time. As I said, at BMS, immuno oncology was a priority. That doesn't mean they weren't at all interested. They were definitely interested in fibrosis, but it was clear that my focusing on uh, fibrotic diseases, diseases of abnormal injury and repair, um, and that's what landed me this position at Coherence Biosciences after a short stint of consulting. Where I'm, I'll tell you what the program is. First, I'll tell you about Coherence because it doesn't quite fit with, with what I've just discussed. Coherence is actually a biosimilar company. Biosimilar coming into existence in the last, I'd say, five to ten years, but more, more so in the last five years. And as you may know, they're not generics, but they're chemically very similar. They're, it's in the biologic arena, so these are all biologics. And the antibodies are almost identical, but they often differ in, in glycosylation. Mm -hmm. Um, around the antibody, not the actual antibody. The antibody structure itself is, is often the same. But what they offer to patients like generics is a lower cost alternative, but no sacrifice in quality or efficacy. And I think as we see, especially around biologics, the cost acceleration, um, it's a large market and it, you know, it, it's a very effective drug, but every year the cost goes up. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think we have to pay attention to this. And we, we have actually with our first launch was what's called, what's called a Udenica, which is a GCSF alternative to Nulasta of Amgen. We already captured over 20% of the market and the most successful biosimilar launch in history. Mm -hmm. So, and it all, again, it offers patients and, and physicians and, and healthcare providers an alternative, a lower cost alternative um, in this kind of market. And that's, our, that's really the goal of the company going forward, focusing both in the immunoinflammatory space with probably a Humira alternative going forward. And, and some focus in oncology and ophthalmology. I focus my efforts in a subsidiary of Coherence called Integrin Therapeutics. Not Integrin, but Integrin mm -hmm. uh, Therapeutics. And within that, we are really focusing most of our efforts on a selective PPAR gamma modulator, so a SPARM, which is a non-TZD. So it's not like rosiglitazone or, or, or piaglitazone, but it has the same 
uh, activity profile, for example, what it looks like as a pioglitazone without some of the side effects which have uh, cast a pall over this class. Initially, um, you know, Steve Nissen uh, generated some you know, alarm about these drugs over 10 years ago. Heart failure risk, uh, weight gain, some concern about bladder cancer. The, the recent studies, for example, the pioglitazone show that it's actually protective against heart attack and stroke, but it does cause weight gain. But that's actually because it does what it's supposed to do. This class of drugs with these PPAR gamma modifiers, what they do is uh, the, one of the major functions of them is to sensitize the adipose cell to insulin. So it's really a, a sensor. It's a metabolic thermostat, a rheostat for food that comes in and when insulin has to increase the uptake or to regulate the uptake of lipids and, uh, and glucose into the cell. And it, it really modulates the insulin pathway in order to do that. Uh, as a result of that, the insulin sensitization, then the adipocyte actually, um, the, we produce more of it adipocytes. So you, you gain some weight, but it's a quote-unquote a healthier fat. <laughs> now, that's, I think it's fascinating physiologically, and it's good to have healthy fat, and you know, toxic fat causes heart problems and diabetes and, and, and more insulin resistance, and, and the healthy fat guards against that or acts contrary to that. But one of the diseases we're focusing on, and we've actually had two successful phase two studies, one in type two diabetes and one in relapsing remitting MS, and we'll talk about why they seem disparate in these diseases, but why there's overlap between them. But the disease focus of, of current interest for us is NASH, mm -hmm. or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is uh, you know, becoming of epidemic proportions, um, which is associated with the obesity epidemic mm -hmm. in America. Uh, that's something that uh, is particularly uh, of interest to me and of concern to me going forward, because as you probably have heard or read, uh, in 2030, 50% of the population will be obese, and about a quarter of the people will be morbidly obese. And the consequences of that are just are protean and, and, and really potentially devastating from the healthcare, the impact, financial impact, but also what it's doing to, to, to patients in terms of by increasing the risk of diabetes, cancers that are associated with it. And now we're seeing, um, as you're probably aware, that obesity is associated with this chronic low-grade inflammation. So chronic overnutrition, that, that more calories you you take in, and especially carbohydrates, and you, the body reacts in a way that, to try to suppress the effects of those abnormal lipids and that excess glucose. Interesting. And you get a chronic, low-grade, somewhat meta-inflammation state. And that actually has been implicated not only in diseases of like atherosclerosis, diabetes, and a variety of cancers, but in neurodegenerative diseases. Mm. Interesting. Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. That's amazing. Well, you know, I know we're going to get to some of those top interesting topics in a minute, but you know, maybe before we get into some of the science, one of the things that struck me from your background is that you've sort of seen all different sides of this equation. You've seen it first as a physician, then you saw it as a drug developer in a bigger company, right, with a large portfolio, and then now at a smaller company with a far more agile, more focused perspective. We'd love to hear a little bit about how you've transitioned from one to the other and what differences you saw in those different environments? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. And that the environments are, are quite different and, uh, in some ways, but, but similar in others. An academic environment is one of discovery um, and some cooperation. You know, everybody has to get their own grants, so you know, there is some competition, but it's a healthy competition often. And there's, all, there's also working together on large programmatic grants. But there's less focus on understanding mechanisms of disease. 
So there's really more focus on mechanisms, cellular mechanisms, and biologic mechanisms. There's some push now, and at Stanford was particularly entrepreneurial, and obviously there's a lot of companies developing coming out of Stanford, or Weizmann's lab and other labs, you know, where, where you get that uh, more of a feel of translation and the direct connection to disease mechanisms. The problem with that is that what's often rewarded in funding or NIH funding, uh, more certain bets, less risk. Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't lend itself to, to, to disease, to understanding uh, complex diseases and drug discovery or drug development mm -hmm. and mechanisms of disease. When I moved to pharma, what I was struck with was that they are incredibly skilled at drug development, but have less expertise in less disease area expertise and less specific biology expertise. They have some, the discovery expertise is more in the chemi, you know, in the more of the chemistry and the pharmacology. But the actual biological underpinnings of disease, um, I was one of the few people who could bring that kind of perspective. And they, they, they're seeing an increasing need for that, but that's been slow to, to, to gain traction because there's a lot of legacy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in big pharma. So if you've been in it for a while, you know, you're used to doing things a certain way. Biotech, on the other, you know, uh, being part of a smaller, as you say, more nimble and agile biotech, has some strengths or components of both where um, they're very focused. Um, you can move more quickly. The decision making is, there's less layers involved in the decision making process. You rely more on consultants. Mm -hmm. um, so um, getting the right consultant and getting the right, you know, the right match for what your needs are is, is absolutely critical but you have less resources in general. Uh -huh. So that's a challenge. And not only do you have less resources, but um, by having to rely on consultants, you don't have the internal expertise, not necessarily as a check, but actually to work uh, more efficiently and effectively with those consultants. Uh -huh. um, so I think that you know, ultimately, if we wanted to create the ultimate Venn diagram, we would figure out a way to get these groups <laughs> to, to work, uh, to get Close representatives together. from all uh, you know, all of these groups to work more effectively together, cooperate and collaborate. Uh, um, I don't think we're quite there yet because there's obviously barriers to that. The sharing of information, big financial implications in drug discovery. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, so we, a fair number of folks who listen to the podcast uh, often are early in their careers, whether they be in academia or, uh, you know, individual contributors in, in the life sciences industry itself. Of those three different segments, right, as you described in, in your experience, where would you recommend they start? That's a, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think that you know whether one starts their career in a um, academic environment, uh, there, there's no substitute for a deep and you know and really intense experience and immersion in science um, that allows you to really interact with top people in the field and be inspired in that way and, and learn in that way. So I, I think that those starting you know who are getting a PhD or an MD PhD. A deep academic experience is absolutely essential. Following that, I found it, you know, and I started a bit later in my career, but I found it particularly valuable to be exposed in big pharma to multiple aspects of drug discovery rather than being hyper-focused and hyper, you know, and limited somewhat in scope in a smaller biotech uh, type of environment. Now, that somewhat depends on what your area of concentration is because the reality is even in big pharma, it's not like you have access to <laughs> um, you know, depending on your, the level you, you come in at, it, you don't have access to all the different therapeutic areas mm -hmm. or, or, or disciplines. But I do think that it's, it is important at some point to get that broader experience and perspective into what, you know, what are the intricacies 
on multiple aspects of drug discovery mm -hmm. and drug development before you become hyper-focused in one area, whether it's a pharmacology, because that kind of exposure, if you can get that exposure in big pharma, and then move um, to a, a smaller biotech experience. Mm -hmm. I, I have found that particularly valuable, and I think that, that for younger people coming in, that might be something that they can heed also. That's great. Yeah. I imagine in your background, you saw at BMS, you saw you know best practices at one of the global players for a long period of time, and now you're able to bring whatever best practices still apply to Coheres, um, rather than the inverse being true, where if you went from biotech, you have no concept of what best practices look like and, and how you pick and choose what you want to take to a biotech. Yeah, I think that's very true, and that's why I think that that really says a lot about you know, the, the bigger farm experience. But again, if, you know, for those individuals or scientists for which are more drug discoverers, you know, it may not be as essential yeah. to, you know, to, to follow that path. Yeah, makes sense. And so you've been in, on the translational side for, for quite some time. Would love to hear your perspective on what have been the most dramatic changes in a positive way in you know, the work that you're doing now in your day to day. And then to follow on to that, where you see this area of concentration, uh, where you'd like to see it be in, in 10 years from now. Yeah, well, I could talk about, I, I think I could use for a good analogy for that, you know, the current area that I'm focused in now, and just because it, I think it's, it kind of gives perspective to where the field may be going, and, and um, because it's, a, you know, this target that we're working on. I, and I mentioned this in some preliminary detail around this PPAR gamma mechanism of action and how this regulates the uptake of insulin into the cells, but it does a lot more than that. So I think what I've learned is, you know, in coming from, again, from academia and then also from... Uh, uh, as we talked about from Big Pharma, is, and coming here and, and, and trying to develop this compound for NASH, which and already had a phase two, couple phase two, so it was mm. already more advanced, is that um, there's, there's still a lot to be learned about the science and how to apply that science to these different diseases. So the PPAR gamma mechanism is somewhat fascinating because it's a nuclear transcription factor. And what we're learning is, as, as we follow the path of disease, as we follow, and for example, as we talked about associated with chronic obesity or overnutrition, um, or even other diseases associated with this chronic injury. As I said, I have an, my expertise is in fibrotic diseases, which are characterized by this repeated, or, or whether it's intermittent or repeated injury, there's injury that's not resolved, leading to chronic inflammation and scar. And that, you know, that has corollaries with cancer, where you get injury to the cell, whether it's a DNA, you know, mutation, mutation, you know, underlying mutations, a couple hits, um, and you have um, dysfunction with DNA repair challenges, and, and then escape, ultimately leading to, to a cancer phenotype. Before you get to that, the immunosuppressive phenotype you see in cancer, for example, you also see in fibrotic diseases. So there's a significant overlap, in fact, with the PPAR gamma mechanism of action, what happens is, and this is one of the challenges you asked about the translational work I've done, and what I've observed is that we, we just, one of the real shortcomings uh, that we've experienced in drug discovery and finding targets which work effectively is there's no really way to model chronic disease in, in an animal or in, in, in a tissue culture dish. And so we have to rely more on, on human tissue and human samples. And even human tissue, for example, by the time you get that cancer from a stage four patients often, it's been through so many mutations and perturbations and epigenetic changes that it's it, it, unlikely that it reflects what, what happened at its, mm -hmm. you know, at, its, at its onset. So the PPAR, can you get me back to the PPAR gamma? That expression of the PPAR gamma res, receptor or the complex PPAR gamma itself is lost as a result of chronic injury 
and inflammation. Body says, you know, I, wanna, I don't want to start allowing these lipids to come into cells and insulin to drive that. I'm going to figure out a way to how to dampen that. And it does that by epigenetic regulation. So chromatin, hmm. methylation. And that turns off the target. And so what we're finding is that in multiple tissues, if you turn that modulate the target to restore it to some kind of normal homeostatic expression, um, that actually can have a significant hmm. impact on disease. And pioglitazone, which is one of the TZDs, actually had some quite positive uh, data in NASH, but it had some of these side effects, which I've spoken about. So restoring the function of a gene that's down-regulated, you don't, you don't want to overshoot, but the restoring this kind of normal yep. homeostatic balance, if we can achieve that um, in many of these diseases, it would be quite um, powerful. Yeah. It would be quite powerful. And I think that, you know, that's what I've learned. And one, but again, one of the challenges around that is that animal models don't really allow you to evaluate that. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have to rely on human samples. Um, and that's been challenging. And that's where um, some of the newer opportunities may come in around big data or data science. You know, in that regard, uh, when you think about the opportunity that data science and modeling provides, obviously there's a lot of complexity, a lot of different pathways, even for one given disease. How do you think about making sense of it? And how do you think compute could be able to be leveraged in that regard? We, we experience that, you know, in real time. We are a program at BMS, for example, which I was involved in working with the data science group. It was somewhat nascent, both in immuno-oncology and in fibrosis. Uh -huh. um, they really didn't have the, uh, the background or the expertise in, in informatics or data science, and they were starting from scratch. So the more data you put in, um, you would think that that, you know, it would help you de deconvolute some of this complexity, but actually generates even more complexity. Mm -hmm. I think what's absolutely critically important are two major things. One is that you need disease area experts and, and uh, biologists who understand path the pathways of the disease of interest working in tandem, side by side, to ask the right questions and to generate the right hypotheses. Because it's not only... Once you generate the data, then you try to understand it, but it's actually equally or more important is you know, asking the right questions up front and then you know, guiding your, you know, your um, whether it's a software program you write and actually tailoring it to the specific uh, process you're trying to understand. One of the challenges of data science is, and just in drug discovery and drug development in general, is that we tend to be uh, lumpers. So we tend to lump all these diseases and it wasn't just BMS, it's other companies, but, you know, the lung cancer, whether, you know, adenos or, you know, if you have an adeno, it's similar to from one patient to another, or there were not, or it's a squamous, small cells, obviously a little different, and other cancers are similar in that way. But what we're learning now is that, that each individual subtype has so many different variations. They're so heterogeneous. That's where data science can come in, but you have to go into it without understanding that you're actually looking for these to deconvolute these uh, these kind of uh, you know this heterogeneity within the same within the different patients, um, and that's why the promise I think is. But you have to really understand that up front. And the same thing in fibrotic diseases. We're learning that um, everybody talks about precision medicine. I think some of that's can be a cop out in some way um, because you know everybody would like to you know tailor your therapy for the one patient one cell, but that's not realistic. Mm. But it, one thing is clear is that. You know, all macrophages are not, all tumor suppressive macrophages are not the same um, in, in different cancers in different patients. They evolve over time. Mm -hmm. um, so this, 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 this dynamic of, of that really, you know, requires the uh, data scientist 
um, and the, uh, the biologist, the disease biologist, and the informatics groups to work closely together, not in, in these isolated silos where one generates, you know, one writes the software program, the other just tries to yeah. interpret the data. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, obviously, uh, data science and, and machine learning, et cetera, feel like tools, right, that you can use in this process. But we're seeing much broader shifts in the overall landscape from a modality standpoint. CRISPR, CAR-T, et cetera. I'm curious, like, as you look out to the next, say, 20 years, two decades, right, of drug development, what do you sort of see as some of the opportunities that exist to uh, really disrupt or change the way the industry operates? I think that's a great question. I think I've given a lot of thought to that. You know, where, what, what are we looking at in the future? What are the opportunities, but what are the, some of the challenges associated with that? Inevitably, we, I th we have to move to a point where we, we are more effective at marrying our therapy to the tissue and the, the cell of interest, the, you know, the, the offending cells or cells. These small molecules which target a, you know, a pathway of interest or offending pathway. Um, what we're learning is, and this is a case for fibrotic disease and often the case for cancer, its effect in one cell type may be totally opposite of its effect in the other uh, in effect in the other cell type. For example, in fibrosis, if you, if you throw a beta-catenin inhibitor, it will suppress the fibroblast, but it will also suppress the epithelial cell, which you need to repair. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you, that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And even in you know, some of these, TGF-beta is all, also a good example. And not only in fibrosis, but in cancer. You, can, you suppress TGF-beta, there are side effects associated with it. But TGF-beta is anti-inflammatory. Yeah. You know, the, the goal of TGF-beta is to suppress the inflammatory response. Well, that helps you heal, right? But it also shifts you towards a fibrotic phenotype. So going forward, you know, in the next 10 to 20 years, we really have to get better at, you know, and this is where CRISPR-Cas9 can come in, this precision targeting within specific tissues with certain diseases. It may be different for kidney fibrosis or kidney cancer versus lung versus um, liver. But that's that kind of precision, I don't mean precision in terms of just precision at the patient level, but I mean at the cellular and the tissue level. For sure. Now, one of that, as you know, one of the problems with CRISPR or CRISPR-Cas9 is and opportunities is that for a genetic disease where you say if you're repairing a def defective gene and you, you're able to repair it by, uh, by activating the, the normal, you know, making it a, a normal gene, then those cells will make more of the normal protein. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, also, you don't have to infect all, you don't have to affect all cells. Right. In cancer, you probably don't have that luxury. Mm -hmm. You have to, how do you, you know, how are you going to impact all cells that are associated with the cancer yeah. or the critical cells? And that's, that's one of the challenges to that uh, um, just in the, in the short term, at least. For sure. If I can actually just drill into one topic here, just real quick, which is there's definitely an aspect around cell-based selection. But there's also an aspect, I think, and CRISPR could be one of the approaches to take, as you pointed out. But you know, having a material science background, one of the areas that have always come up is sort of drug delivery more broadly, right? How do we deliver to either specific tissues or specific types of cells, wherever they may be distributed? You don't hear that quite as frequently these days in terms of the solution set. Why do you think that is? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's another area of, of interest to me. I, I think that's absolutely critical. I think you make a, make a really important point. I think the reason that it's been, you know, it's, it's not often talked about as a priority is that it's, it's been very challenging mm. to, trans, you know, to translate from the preclinically or the, the cellular level to the patient level. Uh, as you know, for example, RNA therapeutics for, for liver diseases they, they, they often work well, 
but to get them you know, for systemic diseases and, and other tissues, it's, it's been very challenging, especially in you know, certain tissues, which, um, whether it's in, you know, with cancer tissue or fibrotic tissue, where the penetration of those tissues is more challenging. The nanotechnology is something you know, you, you're probably aware of and, and has great potential. It might not have the same potential for all diseases, but I think it's absolutely that delivery concept, mm -hmm. um, whether it's you know, how you, you know, package your small molecule, or we're actually getting better with bispecifics now and antibodies, and we're manipulating antibodies like small molecules. That inevitably will be critically important. You won't be able to target, as I said, this precision cellular tissue target will not be possible with improved delivery uh, technology. Okay. Now, zooming out a little bit, as you've been at Coherence now for some time, is there one takeaway or something that you would tell your younger self, either in medical school, going, you know, when you were starting at BMS, or even at, at Coherence, that you think listeners would be interested in? You can probably tell that I'm very passionate about this, this area. And, and um, with that passion comes both great hope and expectation, but also frustration. So uh, what I would say is that just starting out or thinking, you know, as me as a, you know, a younger aspiring entrepreneur and drug developer, um, this concept of discovery and problem solving, which I've seen along the way, but also the critical need for cooperation and collaboration, um, which happens more or less in some places, but needs to be improved upon. And it, it does, it's not only at this micro level, it's just, you know, at the macro level, um, you know, when we talk about, whether it's, we talk about overnutrition or we talk about cancer, groups working together with different expertise in different areas um, will be absolutely essential. And what I would want to facilitate is that kind of process. It's almost like a think tank concept, but more, more pragmatically. Mm -hmm. not, not just kind of, you know, uh, not just a phantasmagorical kind of, you know, hope, um, but something that really be, can be translated in reality mm -hmm. into, a, into a more practical and achievable reality. I think it, that, that's what I would want to do as a younger indi individual, and that's what I hope to do going forward. Great. Yeah, that, that type of collaboration can certainly have a multiplier effect on, on development activities and how quickly you're able to get things out or just fail quickly as well. You know, I think maybe the last topic that might be relevant here is thinking about as modalities evolve, as, uh, you know, we have new tools like data science, how that then enables the broader drug development ecosystem also to start to evolve as well. And I know one of the things that we've talked about, you know, prior to this interview was about how the role of pharma is changing and the role of academia is changing, the role of biotech is changing. In, say, three to five years, or let's call it 30 to 50 years even, what do you sort of see the strengths being of those three critical parts of the life sciences domain? I would say that as, as we try to envision the future and, and a more you know, seamless transition to, to, to this harmonious inter interaction between the, those three sectors, I would see the education, as you asked about earlier, this uh, education of the young scientists and these earlier scientists, almost like, um, it's not like vocational, but there are, there's training and expertise in drug discovery and drug development exposure if that's something that you know, you're interested in, for example, in college or, or even beyond, then you get earlier exposure to that. So you can bring that with you, um, whether you go into a biotech or uh, you continue in academics or in, you know, it, or in a larger pharma. Because they, they all, each offer, as we've talked about, unique areas of strength 
and um, that you know that that are absolutely important and essential. But what I found is that if you have embedded in these organizations, like I had biology expertise, and that was I thought something that really BMS did not have, uh, and I was learned what they were you know able to learn what they were expert had expertise in. If you introduce that earlier, and you allow this kind of dynamic, and some farm and biotech are even actually doing those kind of exchanges, but if you make that reality, you know, uh, really uh, broaden it and you make it more available to more people, I think that will be absolutely uh, transformational in terms of our ability to, to work together but also develop drugs more effectively. It's really going to be this dynamic interaction between those three sectors. They don't have to live in isolation. That's great. Well, you know, uh, Glenn, we'd love to thank you for being on the podcast today. I think it was a really exciting discussion and would love to maybe revisit uh, topics, I guess, in the next couple of months uh, after Coherus has had a chance to uh, bring some more holy products to market. Thanks. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks again. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Again, that's Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.